This is a lengthy, very dense first lesson on biblical sexuality. We're simply calling this one the first marriage part one because our next lesson will cover the first marriage as well. There's so much to be gleaned from the book of Genesis, and I have a lot to read, and uh, so let's just get into it. This set of lessons is not an apologetics course designed to change the world's mind. I, I, I'm not anointed to do that. I'm not an anointed man for apologetics. I don't debate pagans. That's uh, not my calling, though I might on an airplane. My job is to perfect the saints and call the church to repentance. So I use my teaching gift for that purpose. Uh, it's also not designed to expose the bizarreness of the world's ever-drifting an inconsistent view of human sexuality, and all you have to do is look at the last five years of America's morality to see that whereas nobody even thought about child transgenderism two years ago, now if you speak out against it, you're some kind of transphobe. There's an issue when even current transgender folks are saying, this is dangerous. Why are we transitioning five-year-olds? When transgender people are saying that, you know there's a demon at work. The world is of their father, the devil. They will sail wherever his winds blow, and may that never be one of us. The purpose of these lessons is to remind the body of Christ of the doctrine of their creator and to encourage the church to reject the middle school peer pressure applied to us to accept and even embrace what our God rejects. So I have this. This is a, this is a prophecy. It's even not a strong prophecy because it's already happening. The American church is embracing LGBTQ plus and normalizing it. Now you mark my words, I would almost tell you 90% of our American denominations will embrace LGBT before it's all done. I'm already seeing the softening of this in the Baptist denomination. Now not my personal friends, but at the higher ups, I'm already seeing the groundwork being laid for even the Southern Baptists who are one of our greatest denominations of soul winners to receive this and they're using gentle terms now like acceptance and loving in our gay brothers and sisters. While a remnant of the church has not and will not, most churches and denominations will, this curriculum is not a warning. It's a reminder of what our God has stated. It is a doctrinal review. These lessons will cover the Bible's orthodoxy concerning marriage, heterosexuality, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, rape, polygamy, gender identity, and cross-dressing. Did you know the Bible covers gender identity before our academics made it up? Our Bible already discussed it. And the Bible dress deals with cross-dressing because there's nothing new under the sun. In this endeavor to return to the Bible standard, there are a few points to consider. And so I have to open up these lessons with the reminder of where we build our doctrine. Where do we get our information from? Sadly enough, the American church is not biblically literate anymore. The mega ministries of the last 30 years have taught the body of Christ to reject their Bible. Not every mega ministry, but the ones that taught seeker friendlyism and church growth gimmicks, they in their recipe included a dumbing down of the reverence for Scripture. And because of that, even in this church, even some of you don't look at your Bible in between services. So you just trust me that what I'm telling you is the truth. Now, shame on you for being Christ denial 
in your weekly Bible reading. But think about the bigger churches or the denominations that meet once a week. And that's a 30-minute pep rally that has more work put into the worshiptainment production than the actual sermon. Think about that's the bulk of the body of Christ in America now. They don't understand doctrine. And because they feed more on social media and media and their children than they do the Word of God, their doctrine is affected by what they feed on, as is our case. Our doctrine is adjusted by what we feed on, and what we feed on must be the bread of life. If our aim is to be a biblical Christian that pleases God, as opposed to a social Christian, or a progressive Christian, or a crowd-pleasing Christian, or a Sunday morning-only Christian, if we want to be faithful unto the end, we must remember the following points. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. The Bible is the ultimate source of truth. It is absolute truth. This modern notion of, quote, my truth is a delusion. May I never hear out of any of your mouths my truth. It's a delusion that rejects personal responsibility and shuns accountability to the Almighty God. There is only truth. My truth is a fallacy. It's a demon. And this is my truth, which means you can't hold me accountable for anything stupid I do. God's word is absolute truth. When we go and stand before the throne of God, he will not judge us according to my truth. He will judge us according to his truth. And he'll say, were you literate? Oh, yeah, I was literate. Then you're going to hell because you could read my word and you had seven copies in your library. Next point, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3.16. Scripture is given for doctrine, reproof, correction. It's interesting that that passage doesn't say it's given to make you feel good. But hasn't the modern preacher turned the Bible into a book of inspiration? It's like we modeled the daytime talk shows of the 80s. Now, there are some encouraging things in the Scripture, but most of the New Testament is a warning. Most of the major prophets are warnings, and the minor prophets are warnings. In fact, when you come to read the whole Bible, it's a whole book of warning because there's a righteous God who's coming to destroy an earth and create a new one. The culmination of the gospel is righteous judgment and wrath being assuaged. Scripture is given for doctrine, reproof, correction, and to reveal what is righteous. Adhering to Scripture will produce a mature man or woman of God. To depart the word is Christ's denial. Third point. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. Proverbs 4.2 Christians build their doctrine and their faith from God's word, including the law of Moses. So much of what is even codified in our Constitution and in our legal code comes from the Old Testament. So we don't reject the Old Testament like the modern heretics with the megachurches do. Next point. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, 105. God's word lights our path, not society's whims or shifting cultures. We don't chase the algorithm. We're led by the word. 
We don't leave the word for the algorithm, for the social media algorithm, for the winds. If your life is defined by posting some nation's flag, hashtag I'm making a difference, you're a social moron. It is good preaching. If that's the height of your daily importance, oh, look, new cause. Oh, let me scroll through the flag emojis and find a C. Is that, is that their flag? Is, is that their flag? Is, is that their flag? Is that Puerto Rico's flag? Wait, wait, no. Is that America? No. Oh, there. Hashtag, I'm important. That's a messed up culture. That's everybody like 35 and under right now. God's word illuminates our life, not shifting standards or cultures. And right now our culture in this nation is revolving. It's evolving every less than two years now. It's just do, 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 do. And that here we are following the ancient of days. The only thing that should change about us is our clothing and everything else sticks in line with God. Amen. Try some new food if you want, upgrade your car if you need to, but our culture in Christ stays the stinking same. <laughs> Because, amen. Because this Bible doesn't change. <laughs> Therefore, come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, anything unclean. And I will receive you and will be a father unto you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty, 2 Corinthians 6, 17 and 18. God calls us out from the world. He expects us to maintain the difference he set between us and the world. When you are born again, you are made light. Everything else is darkness. He makes the distinction. He expects you and I to maintain the distinction. When we go to win the lost, we bring light. If you're not bringing light, you're not winning the lost. You're probably just hobnobbing with darkness because it's still in your heart somewhere. There's a distinction between us and the world, and it is an us versus them. And we maintain that distinction. We're, we're to win them. We're to intercede for them. We're to pray for the lost, but we don't become like them. You don't win anybody by going down. You win people by coming up higher and inviting them to come up with you. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And such were some of you. Paul didn't have a problem reminding people where they came from. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, God has not changed his definitions of sin nor his requisite of repentance. Sin is still sin, and it must be repented of in order to be right with God and see heaven. You must repent of sin to be right with God, and you must repent of sin to see heaven. You get down in the the weeds and the quagmire and the mud of the world, there's no promise you'll endure to the end. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. The current discussion of God's love concerning those who, live, uh, who are living sinful is ignorant and incomplete. Well, we just have to love people. And this is worthy of a whole curriculum on what is true love. We just can't cut people off. Yes, you can. Yes, you must. We cannot be ignorant of the scriptures. God called Lot and his family out of Sodom, and they left family behind. They went a little bit further. Mama looked back. She got left behind. They just kept peeling people away like an onion. 
trying to preserve a righteous man. God's love for sinful mankind does not negate his requirement of holiness. His love has never been in question, and that's what we forget to discuss. God's love has never been in question. In fact, it is often overemphasized in modern preaching. Our love for God is the real problem and never seems to enter into any doctrinal debate. We know God loves mankind. Every football player for the last 40 years put John 3.16 under his eyes. The world knows John 3.16. They mock it. Steve Austin, the wrestler, mocked John 3.16 and called himself Austin 3.16. Everybody knows God loves them. Why don't we ever ask the saint, how much do you love God? How much do you love God? How much do you love God? Because the amount of sin in your life determines how much you hate him. I'd like to hear more sermons in the body of Christ questioning the believer's love for their God. Well, that doesn't seem loving. Are you a moron? John's gospel concludes with Peter, do you love me? Jesus Christ has every right to look at us and say, do you love me? Then obey me. Don't tell me you love me if you don't obey me. Our love for God is the real problem and never seems to enter into the debate. One's lifestyle proves their love for God. Amos 5.15 says, hate the evil and love the good. God still hates evil. He is the one who gets to define what evil is and what is good. In the beginning, he defined what is good sexually. And then our final verse to kind of explain all this, Romans 8.21 says, The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's a common argument right now concerning sexual deviance that says, well, God doesn't make mistakes. As if to say, God made everything he condemned in the scripture. Sin, the curse, and the devil still have dominion in this earth. Christians cannot forget that. God gets blamed for everything wicked and gets credit for nothing good. In our culture, God gets blamed for everything wicked and gets credit for nothing good, even in the church. Combined sin, the curse, and the devil, they work to pervert everything God has intended for righteousness and good. It is important to understand this so that God is not blamed for creating corruption or perversion. The popular adage, God doesn't make mistakes, is accurate so long as it, does not, it is not applied to anything Satan has made. So these are kind of foundational principles of sound hermeneutics and Bible doctrine building. And if a Christian ever leaves any of those critical points, we could add three more. We could maybe distill it down by two. But the framework is there. We build doctrine from the Word of God. We don't build doctrine from an aunt or an uncle or experience. We don't build doctrine from our professor. We don't build doctrine from the boss. We build doctrine from the Word of God. The same word that got us born again keeps us clean if we'll obey it. So in the beginning, let's move on now and let's begin to lay the foundation of what the scripture has to say about biblical sexuality. Let me just pause and this thought occurs to me. I might write about it later. When, if you were to study archaeology or maybe ancient anthropology, you'll find that most pagan cultures in their idols typically have fertility gods. 
little totems of women with enlarged breasts and protruded bellies. And they, you can even find little totems of men with giant erect penises. Something about demonism worships the sex drive. All satanic cults involve sexual sacrifices. Something demonic about it. When people go full-fledged demonism, their sex drive awakens like a ravening beast. Something as animalistic as a sex drive should not be what defines our life. Now, one thing about those who walk in biblical righteousness is that our sexuality does not define who we are. We don't have to march for who we are. We just are. When your sexuality is the premier thing you use to describe yourself, you're in idolatry. And when you have to lead with your pronouns, you're in idolatry. If you have a beard, I know what your pronouns are. If you're wearing lipstick, I know what your pronouns are. At least that's how it was two years ago. Now we're not sure what the beard or the lipstick means. Let's see what the Lord said from the beginning. When studying the Bible, the faithful student will employ various hermeneutics when interpreting the text. One of those such hermeneutics or principles uh, or interpretive techniques is called the law of first mention. Other hermeneutics include lexical, syntactical, historical, cultural, etc., the law first mentioned states that the first appearance of any subject, event, law, or doctrine in Scripture sets the precedent for the doctrine since it is typically the clearest and simplest appearance. Basically, if you're introduced to murder in the Scripture, the first appearance lets you know what's going on. If you, you see offerings and sacrifices, you understand something from the simplest, basest form, and then that event, doctrine, experience is further developed throughout Scripture as God begins to legislate it, condemn it, promote it, etc. This is why the book of Genesis is so critical. This is why any modern preacher who tells you not to read the Old Testament is a heretic. Christian television is full of preachers now who will tell you not to read the Old Testament. Anybody that tells you to stay away from the Old Testament is a heretic. Mark them turn them off, and if you ever give any money to them, repent for wasting God's money on a heretic. Future appearances of that doctrine are then judged in light of the first appearance. Marriage and human sexuality are prime examples of this. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. A lot of pronouns there. He, him, Male, female, he, them. God's not confused. The introduction of mankind's creation sets the precedent for what was and remains God's design and intention. This includes the following. Point number one. Mankind was made to be two and only two different genders. Male, and female. This is not an apologetics course for the world because they don't care about our scripture. Our holy book is not their holy book. This is for the body of Christ that affirms the inerrancy and inspiration of scripture. And 
if you don't believe in the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture, you're lost. And you'll go to hell. This is the playbook that unites everybody who confesses Christ. So I don't care about your woke uncle. I don't care about your queer nephew. I'm taking this back to the Word of God. God created male and female, two and only two genders. God did not make any other gender. There is no third gender, much less the 90 or so that New York City recognizes or the 90 or so that is on San Francisco's city application to receive money, which we will go over that. We'll have to uh, edit some of it because uh, one of the genders that San Francisco represents or acknowledges is a term called F-U-C-K boy. That's a gender. You can check that on your San Francisco application and receive government money. I identify as an F boy. Maybe we won't abbreviate it. Maybe we'll just let you read it in all of its glory and we'll put it in our curriculum. Talk about apostate and have lost their stinking mind. Lord of mercy. All other genders are fabricated by depraved minds. All other genders are fabricated by depraved minds. Number two, God made human sexuality to be a binary. To break the binary, which is a very popular term right now, is a doctrine of devils. Somebody pointed out that if you identify as non-binary you automatically create a new binary. Those who are binary and those who are non-binary, you're still back to a binary. These apparently are folks with gender study degrees who obviously stink worse than I do at math. <laughs> Point three, male and female are the image of God. Male and female are the image of God. Very simple. Any other gender mankind has created is apart from the image of God. It's not God's creation because he only said male and female are created in his image. You fabricate anything else, you're trying to recreate God in your image. It is therefore aberrant to divine design. So any gender beyond the binary is a doctrine of devils and a rejection of God's image. And it's a heresy. I'm not trying to convince the world. They sail where the demons' winds blow them. Genesis 1:28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Verse 28 introduces the institution of marriage, the sacredness of which cannot be overemphasized. Several foundational truths can be extracted from verse 28. We're building doctrine together to understand why marriage as a binary has existed for 6,000 years and only within, honestly, the last 50 years since the sexual revolution of the 1960s has the West lost its mind. Point four. The first institution created by God was marriage. 
and by extension, what is now called the nuclear family. That's in reference to the, uh, the pattern or model of an atom where you have a father and a mother as the nucleus and children buzzing around them. If you were raised biblical, you know that your life revolved around mom and dad. And if you want to be really atomic, at some point they bumped you off as an electron and you went off and joined somebody else and started and made a new element. <laughs> Hopefully you weren't raised in a radioactive home where you're like, please let me leave. <laughs> Point five. According to the law first mentioned in Genesis, marriage is one man joined to one woman. That's all it is. We might add, joined by God in his presence. I'm a firm believer in being married in the house of God. I'm an even more firm believer if the house of God is not available, at least make it the presence of God through the congregation of God's holy people. My personal opinion, I think it's rebellious and sinful to elope. Because marriage is a celebration that reflects Christ in the church and the coming together of Christ in the church will not be an eloping. It will be on demonstration for the whole of the world to see. So why would you de degenerate that image of Christ in the church to save your family money? Marriages are expensive, but Christ in the church, that costs a lot too. So you see all these little cultural aberrations we make up for convenience sake? It's an insult to elope. It's an insult to your mother and your father. It's an insult to her mother and father. It's an insult to the house of God. It's an insult to the congregation. It's an insult to God. Now, if that was you, and I don't know, I don't, I'm not thinking of anybody, just repent and say, Lord, we were morons. We were ignorant. Have mercy. This is the only form of matrimony God acknowledges. All other unions are apparent to divine design. Polygamy and homosexuality will be addressed in a later lesson, so we don't need to discuss that here. Both are completely absent. Both homosexuality and polygamy are completely absent from the purpose and mind of God in creation. Both are condemned in the New Testament. Point number six, marriage is a second thing to receive God's blessing in the Bible. The first thing being animals. He blessed them and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply because animals have to replenish and refill the earth. The third thing God blessed was the Sabbath day. This makes matrimony the greatest of all human relationships, greater even than the parent-child relationship. Your relationship to your spouse is of more importance and greater significance than your relationship with your children because you raise children to leave, and after they leave, you're still in a covenant with your spouse. That's why the Bible commands multiple times in the Old Testament to rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Because even when you're 95 years old, the commandment still says, look at her, that's the wife of your youth, rejoice. When marriages are dysfunctional, I have seen fathers have weird emotional relationships with daughters, and I have seen weird mothers have weird emotional relationships with sons. That's perversion. I've seen it in our own church. It's perversion. That's daddy's little girl. You're a pervert. When your heart says that in a weird way, well, that's mama's little boy. That dude is 80 years old. How are you even still alive, mama? That's mama's little boy. You guys are sharing a nursing room home together. <laughs> Paul later wrote that marriage reflects Christ in the church. 
I think it's awesome. You have a marriage in the very beginning of the Bible and a marriage at the very end of the Bible. And those are your bookends of what marriage should look like. Point seven, procreation is the first commandment legislated by God. This is only possible with a male-female union. You guys know you cannot inseminate feces to make a baby. Nor do two eggs coming together in utero make a baby. And just because it's not a popular thing to say, I'm going to say it. Men can't get pregnant. I had ninth grade biology in Kent, Washington, suburb of Seattle. We covered reproduction. It was the only course that year we didn't do a lab on. Because I remember one of the jocks asking our pretty biology teacher, I can't remember her name, Mrs. Janice, Are we, do we get to do a lab with this section? And he looked at, she looked at him and said, what do you think? <laughs> Reproduction is only possible with a male-female union. This is affirmed in Malachi 2.15 in the New Living Translation. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you're his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. What does God want out of our marriage? Godly children. Malachi adds that procreation is not enough. Discipleship of the children is of premier importance. Any bull can stud a heifer. But that doesn't mean you can disciple it. Any man can be a stud or a, uh, a surrogate, but it doesn't mean that you actually have fathered that child into paths of righteousness. Point eight, subduing the earth is the second commandment given. Authority and dominion were given to the male-female union. Think about the implication of that. Authority was given to the male-female union to subdue the earth. Christian couples would do well to learn to use their authority as well as they have learned to use their reproductive organs. We shouldn't just practice sex. We should practice dominion. The authority has been given to the male-female union. Now, mankind in general does have dominion in the earth, but how much more when you can come into the power of agreement to pray together, to touch base daily, not just in sexual relations, but to touch base daily in prayer and in dominion, surveying your family, your household, your, your domain, and saying, what do we need to pray and command to line up to the will of God? I would also say as... as my other condemnation against our church, not only do some of you not read your Bible regularly, some of you as husbands and wives don't pray together regularly. And that's where Adam said, I think we'll call those crickets. <laughs> chirp, 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 because they make more noise than some of your prayer lives do. So what's your excuse for not praying together as husband and wife? You can't be busy. You're as busy as you want to be. All right, so just looking at these eight points, in your marriage, how much of this are you actually living? 
Do you even have sex anymore? Did you ever have kids? Do you exercise your dominion anymore? So what makes your marriage a marriage? You're just roommates? So now we're just living together. You thought I was going to bash gays. Oh, no, 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 no. I thumped the body of Christ first and foremost because they are my domain. If your marriage is not regularly sexually intimate, there's strike one. If you're not praying together regularly, there's strike two. Three strikes and you're out. Where's your dominion? Is your marriage changing anything in the earth? Or are you just the same? Anthropology slash sociology has traditionally recognized, and we have to say traditionally because now the new deconstructionist modernist sciences, which is really using critical race theory and reevaluating everything that was established science through the lens of oppressor and oppression dynamic. Of course, it's undermining everything that was held as science. Uh, they traditionally recognized three pillars to marriage, all of which can be found in the Genesis account of creation. Marriage, by its original definition, had three pillars. Number one, it was monogamous. Number two, it was permanent. Number three, it was procreative. Point number one, God made one Eve for one Adam. That's monogamy. One Eve for one Adam. That's monogamy. Monogamy ensures the father can care for and parent all his children while simultaneously maintaining a healthy marriage. When you get into the discussion of polygamy, cultures develop polygamy to make sure you could repopulate the tribe or the clan. But one father having 10 wives doesn't parent any of those kids. He can barely care for one of those wives, much less please them all sexually. So polygamy doesn't work because the children aren't being fathered. They're being sired, but they're not being fathered. Monogamy also ensures that the children have the influence of both a father and a mother teaching them, clutch your pearls and gasp, <gasps> gender roles and preparing them to recreate life in their own marriage. Now, one of the doctrines of Marxism, if you study it beyond what your woke professor teaches you, is there's this demonic agenda within Marxism to remove the father's top-down influence from the children. Because children, if they're fathered, not just sired, but fathered, children will learn the prejudices, the culture, the convictions of their father. And they will then carry it to the playground and propagate it on the playground. And they'll speak up about it in classroom because children who are fathered trust mom and dad more than their teacher. Now, you can be a father in the home and still not father your kid. This is why, and I don't mean to disparage the Duggar family. They were famous for, you know, whatever their show was called. I don't believe it's biblical for a woman to have 17 babies. Because that man will have to work 60 hours a day to provide for them. Furthermore, there's not a single biblical example of any woman having that many children. The highest parentage total you see is with King Saul. He had 70 sons, but by multiple women. 
Um, Ahab also had 70 sons by multiple women. You don't see any woman having more than, say, four or five kids. Not even with Jacob, the patriarch. He had 13 kids by four different women. So this whole mama's womb is a Pez dispenser. And why did the Duggars start using contraception? Because she kept miscarrying and it was hard on her body. Now again, I don't mean to disparage them, but that's kind of a cultural family we all understand. It was 17 and counting or whatever their show was called. 19. Anyway. Monogamy ensures that children have the influence of both father and mother. It isn't just a mother's job to carry all those kids. Dad, you need to come home and be involved in those kids' life. And if you can't be involved in the three kids' lives that you have, you don't need a fourth one. You don't need a fifth one. We're not collecting pogs here. We're not collecting baseball cards. You actually have to be involved in these kids' lives. Number two, permanent. God commanded the man to leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. This implies permanence because it means mom and dad are no longer the critical people in your life. This doesn't undermine honor thy father and mother, but the first commandment before honor thy father and mother is leave them. Don't continue to nurse from your mother when you get married. Permanence provides stability with which to rear the children. Stable children grow into stable adults who then serve to stabilize society. Point three, procreative, third pillar. God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, procreative to maintain the species and advance culture and society, filling the earth with godly seed, thus stabilizing society. Children reproduce in adulthood what they were taught as children unless they're discipled and improved upon. This three-point recipe has been the building block of civilization since man's creation. The God-ordained design of family has allowed humanity to advance. Eliminating any of the three pillars sets in motion a societal and cultural decay. Remove monogamy, decay. Remove permanence, decay. Remove procreation, you die out through extinction. The West leads the way. Excuse me, let me back up. Modern man has effectively set himself against God's design and purpose, exalting his wisdom against God's plan. And the West leads the way in this rebellion and has determined all three of the above pillars to be archaic and out of touch with modern man. I've heard, you probably all have heard in our own culture that marriage is old school, marriage is passe, marriage is archaic, masculinity is archaic. Someone just said, a famous Hollywood person just said, testosterone is left over from evolution. We don't need it anymore. Yeah, whatever, yeah. We'll tell those bodybuilders who are taking testosterone supplements. <laughs> so I guess what we need is a whole generation of soy boys, right? Ponytailed latte sippers while I sip my latte. I don't have a ponytail, though. Unless you're a samurai, you don't need a ponytail. And the reason they carry a sword is because they were made fun of a lot. <laughs> 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 
They've set about to undermine each pillar through such cultural phenomena as no-fault divorce. That began to destroy our nation. I think that was passed in the 60s. You no longer had to be committed and work out your differences. Cohabitation. The TV show from the 90s, Friends, normalized cohabitation. They made it funny. And they pushed an agenda of cohabitation and no permanence. They popularized bed hopping. Everybody on that show slept with each other at some point, except for the brother and sister. But I think if the season went longer, they'd have normalized that too. And they all just giggled at it in the 90s. Open marriages. That's really popular right now. Abortion. The culture of baby mamas, which is no monogamy and no permanence. Or outright rejection of procreation for selfish reasons, such as I don't want it to hurt my body. Or my career keeps me from having babies. Or rejection of procreation because of environmental reasons. This one's being pushed at the EU and UN levels because, you know, we're running out of space on this planet. So now we're having what they'll talk about as eugenics and population control like they do in communist countries. In most of these scenarios, it is the innocent children that suffer the most. They in turn develop into maladjusted adults who then procreate and rear their children at a lesser standard. This results in the societal breakdown we currently live in. Now, here's where I further condemn the American church because all the American church seems to be capable of doing right now is delivering up hope for the victims of societal collapse and social collapse rather than preventing the decay by raising a higher standard on those sitting in the pews. So I say, may the church repent and return to her God. Amen. That's a minute short. It's a lot to cover, but we mostly just read it. Hopefully you can see how everything that is normal is found in one chapter of Genesis. Three pillars that sociology has recognized, monogamous, permanent, procreative, it's established in Genesis, and it's what has made societies great. But our society, our culture, the West, we're undermining every one of them. We don't have to be monogamous. We don't have to be procreative. We don't have to be committed. It's causing our downfall. And it won't stop. So what we'll continue with next week is part two of the first marriage. We'll see what God says about gender roles. It will probably be the most, be the most sexist, misogynistic thing I've ever written and declared. And up until 20 years ago, it was the norm. But back then, men knew to stand to pee. And women remembered to squat to pee. We weren't delusional back then. Father, we thank you for these lessons. Help us be reminded of what biblical sexuality has to say. May we be biblical in our doctrine of human sexuality. May we not deny you over some friend's perversion and heresy. May you be more real to us than children. May you be more real to us than our marriage. May you be more real to us than peer pressure. May you be more real to us than likes on social media. May you be the God of our life, and may we never turn our back on you. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.